Many people treat email as a channel to drive people somewhere else versus being the final destination. Most companies use their email as basically marketing for their ultimate product. We were like, why don't we just make email the destination? And so that was one key insight was like, no, 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 we actually don't care about our audience clicking a bunch of links and going to other sites. How can we in five minutes give you everything you need and then you're done for the day? And the action you take is closing the email, not clicking a link. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. Well, today I get to share with you a conversation that I had with Alex Lieberman. Alex is one of the co-founders of Morning Brew and now serves as the executive chairman of that organization. As you'll hear in this conversation, his business acumen is off the charts. He has an incredible amount of leadership experience. And we also got to spend a lot of time talking about personal growth and life outside of work as well. I so appreciate the way Alex communicates about business in this conversation and the way that he makes it really practical for all of us who are on the path ourselves. I wanted to start off by sharing some context of his backstory, and so we jumped in with the origin story of Morning Brew. So in order to give the background, uh, I think I need to go back a little bit because for some people, they dream of starting businesses their entire lives, but that was not the case for me. I grew up in a Wall Street family. Uh, my dad, my mom, my grandpa all worked in financial services on Wall Street. My dad was a mortgage trader. My mom ran the repo sales desk at a Japanese bank. My grandpa um, ran fixed income at Prudential. And so, you know, said by no one ever, like fixed income ran deep in my blood. Uh, and uh, <laughs> my my dream growing up was to be uh, a trader on Wall Street. I it's funny, I love whiteboards and I had a whiteboard growing up. I just ordered one yesterday for my uh, place in Hoboken. And I had, you know, life goals written on that whiteboard. And as a kid, it said, be the best trader in the world. And it's funny because, <laughs> you know, I had no idea what that actually meant. I just wanted to be like my heroes and my heroes were my parents. And so the long story very short is everything in my life called building up to ultimately getting a job on Wall Street was to get that job on Wall Street. Hmm. So I went to this small private school in New Jersey. I ended up going to the University of Michigan for college. I studied business. I did the classic, you know, internships at banks after my freshman year, sophomore year, and junior year. And the way that financial services typically works is you try to get into one of these rotational programs. And so you would get an internship after your junior year of college in a finance rotational program. And if you do a good job, you get an offer to work full-time after your senior year, which means you don't really have to re-recruit for jobs during your senior year. And I was lucky enough to have that happen. I got an offer to work uh, full-time at Morgan Stanley in, what do you know, mortgage trading, literally the same exact job that my dad did. <laughs> so that's like your dream. Yeah. So at the time, like I was, you know, I was living my dream. I was incredibly excited about it. And I came back to the University of Michigan in the fall of 2014. I didn't have to prepare for job interviews. I didn't have to re-interview anywhere. And I had all this free time. And so I started helping students prepare for job interviews. I would always ask the question, how do you keep up with the business world? Every student would always say, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal or I read Reuters. 
but it's dense, it's dry. I don't have enough time in the day to read the journal cover to cover. And so at some point I was like, this is crazy that all of these students who are going to spend half of their life, literally half of their life working in business and they don't have content around the business world that they're excited about. And I had never... Mm. Like, I never thought about the content game before. I had no exposure to media other than, like, consuming it. But the combination of that insight with students slash, there was, a, there was a selfish part of this, which is, like, I had all this time my senior year of college, and I didn't want to not exercise my brain, graduate from college, and then go into my job after school and be like, where am I right now? And so sure. part of what I decided to do is I started every day, spending four hours a day combing through the Wall Street Journal and all the major business publications, finding what I deem to be the most important five stories for the college business student, rewriting those stories in kind of pithy and concise ways, and including other things in this, I guess if you want to call it newsletter, very amateurish newsletter, I would include things like a stock pitch of the day or a business term of the day, something like that, something complimentary and evergreen. And the original product was called Market Corner. It was a PDF that I put together every day. Uh, I used a Microsoft Word template to put it together. The logo for the business was a bear and a bull fighting that I pulled off of Google, had the watermark going across it. There was no way for people to sign up for it, actually. There was no website at the time. You would have to text me or email me and say, hey, Alex, I want to sign up for your new newsletter. Can you add my email address to your listserv? So... It was like, you know, the definition of an incredibly high friction experience to sign up for the product. And, you know, to, to make a long story short, there was enough appetite in this horrible high friction product. And when I say appetite, again, it's all relative. But in the early days when I got excited every time someone signed up for the newsletter and there were only, let's call it 2,000 people in the business school at Michigan and say 500 people signed up. I was like, wow, there's clearly demand here. And so then mm -hmm. it was second semester of my senior year at Michigan when I sent out an email uh, to my readers being like, hey, I'm thinking about taking Market Corner more seriously. If you're interested in helping out, let me know. I got an email from my now co-founder, Austin Reef. He was two years younger at Michigan. We met up before Beer Pong League because we were in the same <laughs> uh, fraternity and there was Thursday Beer Pong League that we were both a part of. We met up in the Winter Garden at Michigan, which the Winter Garden was like the main area of the business school. And I just talked to him about kind of my view on what Market Corner could be and the vision for this business. And I just found that he was such a different thinker from me. And so I would say like it was the best, luckiest decision I ever made was bringing on my co-founder. And I'd say the only part that wasn't luck was my intuition to partner with someone that clearly had passion for the product because they opted into spending this time with me to talk about it and picking someone who was so complimentary to the way my brain worked. Like that was the skill in this. The rest was mm -hmm. luck because I didn't think about this as a business at the time. You know, we spent a week talking to each other before I brought him on as a co-founder. And it was the most important decision other than deciding what business you're going into in deciding who your co-founder is. And so mm. he came on as my co-founder. We actually had two other co-founders that started with The Brew. And 
Uh, we launched Morning Brew in its proper form as an email newsletter in the beginning of 2015. And that was uh, the start of the business. My goodness. Uh, there's so much in that story that I'm stoked to key in on. I'd love to know, are there specific elements in that story that maybe you didn't even recognize them at the time, but looking back, you're like, oh, those were really crucial in setting the foundation for this being as successful as it eventually became? Yeah, there's a few things. The first is, I've had this thought before, which is like, and people have asked me, Alex, how many times have you told the exact story that you just told? <laughs> and I've probably told, I've probably told this story at, you know, if I really have to be honest about it, I don't know, a thousand times. Mm. And, but what's interesting about that is there's a cognitive or like a psychological bias that I remember studying in college that refers to what I've experienced with this. But it's like when you repeat something so many times, you don't, you actually forget what the true truth is. Like, I would love to have had a video camera on my experience of starting Market Corner in Michigan and comparing that to the story I tell now. Because the story I tell now, that is like the tr my true understanding of the experience. But it's, I've repeated it so many times, it's interesting to think about how that may be similar or different. Like, maybe I wasn't actually super intentional about helping students and maybe it was like fully selfish for me to just stay up to date with the business world. So anyway, that's an interesting thing I've realized over time is the more we repeat things, the more it becomes our truth, whether it is the truth or not. The second thing, in terms of early decisions that were crucial to the experience, I think the first was how lucky we got that we made the bad decision of bringing on two other co-founders, not because these two other co-founders were bad people, but because when you think about kind of co-founder relationships in general, mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's been statistics to come out about like kind of what co-founder orientations have the highest probability of success. And usually it's like one co-founder and then two co-founders and then solo founder and then three co-founders. And with these other, the, the two other co-founders we brought on, they were in a lot of ways like photocopies of Austin and I. They were, you know, two guys that as aspired to be investment bankers or traders who had very similar interests to Austin and I. Their brains worked very similar to either Austin or I. And so I think what would have honestly happened is if they stayed on for the business, in the business for a long time, I actually don't think the business would be where it is today because there are many things that could have happened. There could have been a struggle over deciding how to divide the work among us when there's too much similarity in our abilities. I think there could have been potentially schisms in, you know, we've now effectively went every additional co-founder you bring on, it's almost, you think of it as like one or two fundraising rounds, mm. right? So whereas like Austin and I, you know, basically the split originally was, let's call it like close to 50-50 partners in the business. You have four co-founders, it's 25, 25, 25, 25. All of a sudden you need 2X or 3X the size of the business to have the same financial outcome. Wow, yeah. And, and so that's why I think it's really interesting to think about it, uh, why it's so important to be intentional with who your co-founders are. But uh, I will say, I do think a lot of times these issues work themselves out because, I mean, it's, it's obvious, but entrepreneurship is, you know, the greatest journey that I've had in my life in terms of both kind of like uh, professional experience, but also kind of like creative self-expression and like mm. personal growth. But 
it's like, it is wildly unsexy and unenjoyable. And oftentimes, like if you wanted to optimize for financial freedom in your life, I know a lot of people say entrepreneurship is the way to do it, but I actually think more likely it's like going up the corporate ladder a little bit and then moving into entrepreneurship mm. because the odds you succeed are pretty low. And yeah, like you have to be incredibly passionate because for the first four years of Morning Brew, literally for the first four years, we had no idea this was going to be a life-changing business for us. And so anyway, to get back to the co-founders, like after three months for one of them and six months for the other, they just naturally burned out of the business. And I actually mm -hmm. think it's, um, it's a great thing that naturally happens with not just co-founders, but like executives you bring in, where I look at a co-founder or an executive as like a, an organ transplant, and sometimes mm -hmm. the body rejects it, and sometimes the body accepts it. And I think it just naturally rejected it. And I don't think that, you know, our two co-founders who were originally involved in the business, I don't think they would be kicking themselves about not staying involved in Morning Brew and looking where it is today. Because if they didn't feel excitement around it, I don't think it would have mattered what the outcome's been, would have been. They would have not enjoyed the way they were spending their life for six to eight years of building this thing. So I, I would say that's one. The second thing is we made a really intentional decision around how we would write our content. Mm -hmm. And now I see a lot of people doing this, but like painting a picture, basically there were, there were two big insights that we had that I think set Morning Brew up for success in the early days. One is that email as a platform was not new, obviously. Like email's been around for a long time and there have been email newsletters created for a long time. The insight we had was that many people treat email as a stop along the way uh, or like a, a channel to drive people somewhere else versus mm. being the final destination. Most companies use their email as basically marketing for their ultimate product. We were like, why don't we just make email the destination? And so that was one key insight was like, no, no, no. We, we actually don't care about our audience clicking a bunch of links and going to other sites. How can we, in five minutes, give you everything you need and then you're done for the day? And then you the action you take is closing the email, not clicking a link. So that mm. was the first. The second was, our whole view was like, it's obvious that people resonate more with content that feels like a human is talking, right? Like, mm. they, I would say the, some of the best advice on writing comes from like David Ogilvie and other people who are experts in advertising and copywriting. Mm. And one of the biggest things is like create writing that pops or dances. And one of the ways to do that is literally just write like you speak. And so our insight was no business publications out there write like they speak. And so the newsletter started with me, myself and Austin writing Morning Brew. And because we had never been trained in writing, we were forced to write like we speak because we didn't know any other way. We weren't journalistically trained. And then at some point, Austin and I were like, we can't write this thing anymore. And I think a very intentional decision we made that was so important is like, how do we level up the writing? Because Austin and I are not world-class writers, but how do we keep the conversational voice that will be kind of like the thing that people think of when they think of Morning Brew? And so we had this very wonky content process that I've never heard of any other company doing where we had college students would write the story. And these were college students that were unpaid. They were doing it because they wanted to get their content in front of thousands of other students. They would write drafts. 
we had um, this guy who was the editor-in-chief who would do kind of grammar and flow edits of all of the stories. And then we had a third or a second editor, a third part of, let's call it the content supply chain. And that person was the voice editor. And we found someone <laughs> at the University of Michigan who had the, the you know, such an amazing and weird experience of both being in the business school, so having business knowledge, but also being in the improv troupe at Michigan. Meaning he knew how to deliver content that would sing and that would get someone to smile. And so he would edit every story to make sure that this conversational and quick-witted tone was inserted in everything we did. And I think that acted as the foundation for us to maintain that tone to this very day. And then think about how does that tone manifest in things beyond just newsletter? Mm. Man, there were multiple points, it seems like, where there was legitimate, true innovation. Like the idea, I mean, I'm trying to think back till 2014, like the idea that I would pay for an email in 2014 or that like the email is the product, like that was absurd back then. And then even the idea of a newsletter, like newsletters are the thing now. In 2014, that was like, oh, that's what people did in the 80s is they did newsletters. Totally. And then like presenting the news in this short firm, like kind of quirky, like sarcastic way. Like that's all innovation. And whenever I think of like true deep seated innovation, looking back on the fact, it's like, oh, of course they did that in the moment. Like that takes a lot of conviction and courage and feels like risk. Where did the conviction come from to be able to take those risks to do something that was really new in the marketplace? Yeah, I think it's, it's funny because I think when you ask that question, I think to myself, like, I'm not a risk averse or I'm not a risk loving individual at all. Like I'm actually very risk averse. And I think if you, to, to understand why I think that of myself, you have to understand the context we're operating in. We were two guys in college who had the privilege of going to a university that our parents paid for. We had the, you know, the privilege of having time while students to just work on a business idea. And we hadn't raised venture money there was no timeline or even expectation of the financial outcome of this thing. And so it, it really felt like play. Like it, it felt like play because it wasn't like, oh, we gave a million dollars to this angel investor. They need to see return within eight years and we need to get to profitability within a year or two. And so part of it was like those first two or three years were so crucial because by it feeling like play, we got to a place where the audience was large enough such that when it no longer became play, when it switched from play to professional work, the, the risk had been mitigated. Because if you mm. think about it, like we were working on this in college, it cost $100 a month. Worst case scenario is we just stop working on it. Like that's, that is the worst case scenario. I went and graduated from Michigan. I worked in trading. So I ended up going into my job, working for a year in trading. And by the time I quit my job, in September of 2016, we had, I can't remember the exact number, but let's say 50,000 subscribers. We had seen examples of a few other newsletters that had monetized themselves effectively. So like the skim was around before us and they had already started monetizing themselves effectively. Like they were our North Star in terms of what a newsletter as a business could become. So to us, we had audience. We had a reference point on what it could look like to monetize this type of business. And again, it comes down to privilege. Like 
we had an amazing worst case scenario. Our worst case scenario was like, if we go do this thing full time and it doesn't work out, there are many options we have. And all of those options involve having a home, like having the basic things that we need in life, right? Like worst case scenario, we move home with our family for a few months while we figure things out. And so I think just through that lens, I think it's important to point it out because I do think there are some entrepreneurs who take massive risks, but I would actually argue that I've never taken that massive of a risk. And maybe some people would consider it to be massive. I think largely because people get this fixed mindset, especially in careers like finance or in big tech, where you make a lot of money and you look at the delta between what you're making in that career and what you'd be making when you start your business. But what you're not necessarily thinking as much about is what is the delta between your ma- what you're making in your career and what you could make if you end up going and doing your business. Mm. And so, and so, yeah, I, I think I give so much credit to people who do take big risks and, you know, have the courage to do that. But I, I would argue uh, kind of the, the combination of de-risking throughout the process and our own privilege allowed us to do this in a relatively risk-mitigated way. And even as I think about launching businesses in the future, yeah, I'm pretty risk-mitigated, especially today in like, you know, the, the outcome we had from selling Morning Brew and like the nest egg that's been built up. Like I'm very much in the mindset of, I don't want to touch a dollar of that. And I want to figure out how to build businesses without touching a dollar of that. That answer, Alex, makes me think of something that I heard, gosh, it was within the first year of starting our business. I kind of posed a question. It was to Seth Godin. I don't know if you're familiar with Seth, but uh, yeah. And, and it was something related to the risk of starting a business and the risk of innovating, the risk of doing new things. And he kind of shot back at me. He, he seems like pretty contrarian by nature, shot back at me and said, I disagree with your premise. I disagree with your question. And he said, it feels risky. It's not actually risky. It feels risky. And I've dwelled on that a lot of times as we've grown this business and I've observed it in other entrepreneurs in that like, man, me feeling that something is risky uh, is a very emotional response. It's not necessarily rational, but it absolutely impacts the way that I grow and build this business if I'm not careful. And so when you were in that moment in those first few years, did it feel risky to you or were there things that you did to make sure you were having a rational perception of things so that you weren't just operating in anxiety and paranoia? Yeah, it's a great question. And something I've thought a lot about is how people who don't have, let's call it life-defining moments in their first half of life, how they can form valuable perspective without having to experience those life-defining moments. And what I mean by this is, I think so much of my perception around entrepreneurship and risk-taking has been informed by the loss of my dad. I lost my dad when I was a junior in college, right? So basically a year before I started Morning Brew. He was healthy, 47 years old, passed away suddenly. And that experience, like, you know, it it sounds cliche, but it, it truly changed my perspective on everything. I would say the main things that it forced a, it really was a forced change in perspective on was how do I spend time on the things that I truly enjoy 
and and to be honest with you, it's it's not even like that question. I very quick, like my emotional state became, if I enjoy something, I will work really hard at it. If I don't enjoy something, I can't fake that enjoyment. I will suck at it. Like it really was that much of a dichotomy. Whereas like, I think some people will just like, if they don't feel filled by the work that they're doing or the where they're headed, like they can kind of just like fake it for a long time and like just trudge through. I was not capable of doing that. I think largely because of that perspective, the perspective that even if I am controlling everything I can control in my life, there are uncontrollable things and those uncontrollable things could mean, you know, tomorrow is not guaranteed. I think the second is at the end of the day, when I think about risk or the experience really made me feel like there are so few things. There are like, I could count on one hand the the shit that actually matters in life. Mm. And like, that is like my health, my family's health (laughs) and, and having the, the basic necessities so that I don't have to actively worry about those things and I can enjoy the time with the people that I love. Mm. And so given that's always been my perspective since, since this happened, it's like, I think as we were experiencing stuff with Morning Brew, for better or for worse, while shit would constantly hit the fan with the business, my emotional reaction to those things would, uh, my let's call it like my emotional range would be like a, let's call it a two to negative two, where say mm-hmm. maybe the the typical person would be six to negative six or eight to negative eight. And I think that again, it it it's not even something that I'm consciously thinking about. It's like, because I lost my dad, it's like everything relative to it seems so insignificant. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I've spent a lot of time just thinking about, because I would never wish anything like this upon anyone, but I feel actually so grateful for the perspective I have, how can people be provided this perspective of nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems without having to experience something in life that forces that perspective upon them? Mm. Man, thank you for sharing that. It seems like whenever something just devastating and really traumatic happens in someone's life, it's like, it's almost like there's two pretty clear paths. It's like you can lay down and sit in a state of depression and stagnancy and that can last upwards of a decade. I mean, it can just flat out take people out and losing a parent in such an unexpected way, I would imagine can absolutely do that to people. Or you just, you see these examples of people so often where it's like, it's almost like they choose or something occurs internally where it's like they respond in a radically different way. And certainly they, they would never want that to happen. But the results of that happening are like increased fruitfulness, increased generosity, increased perspective and sense of priority. Were there things that you did in that year in between your dad passing away and eventually starting Morning Brew that you think uh, helped make you into the type of person that could respond in a way that was healthy? Yeah, what ended up happening with when when my dad passed i think and and this is a really interesting it plays interestingly into kind of ultimately you know 6 years in the future stepping down as ceo of the brew and thinking about what what was next when my dad was in the hospital and when i was saying bye to him you know one of the things that i said to him was i'm going to take care of everyone and it's interesting because 
it's interesting that I created that responsibility for myself because it wasn't necessarily a rational responsibility, right? Again, I, I'm really fortunate in that like I maybe I probably didn't have to take care of everyone, but I created that responsibility. And it's interesting, again, how powerful promises or your words can be because I really do think that is ultimately what made me laser focused. So I don't know if it was one thing, but it was the fact of after I said that to my dad, I was laser focused on whatever I did. My, very interestingly, my grades in my junior year and senior year of college were significantly better than my grades in my freshman year and my sophomore year. Mm. And ultimately, when I ended up working on Morning Brew, it's just like, while I am in life a very distractible person and a very divergent thinker and very much like an idea person and I can get distracted, almost like my forward momentum on working on the business never wavered. And my view was like, I'm just going to keep putting time and effort into willing this thing into existence. And so I do think so much of my motivation for building Morning Brew was, again, whether rational or not, taking care of my family because of those words that I said to my dad. I think the, the beauty of that is that it really was such a powerful motivator. But I think the um, every motivation or most motivations have trade-offs. And there's the the trade-off of that motivation is it was extrinsically driven. And so at the point in time in which we were selling Morning Brew, in which I knew that I would be able to, quote unquote, take care of my family, that financially things would be fine, it was very interesting to observe only in retrospect now. At the time, I wasn't sure what the hell was happening. My motivation completely depleted. I went from being excited about the business and just like being obsessive about all of my mental real estate being taken up by Morning Brew related thoughts to over the course of a few months after selling the business, I couldn't get myself excited about it. And I wasn't sure why. And so it's interesting to think about how some of the best motivators in the short term lack long-term viability. Things like being motivated by a promise you make to someone. Okay, well, what happens when you fulfill that promise? Or motivation from having a chip on your shoulder because of something someone said to you and you want to prove them wrong. Okay, what happens when you do prove them wrong? Or motivation by hitting a certain net worth goal. Okay, what happens when you do hit that net worth goal? It's actually a trap because either you're no longer motivated by it or if you're still motivated by it, it means the goal line keeps moving. And then the question is, when does the goal line stop moving? And so I think that's why thinking about how do you get to a place, and I think it's really hard in the world we live in, to at least have a healthy amount of your motivation for building coming from true intrinsic desire to learn or to be of service or to accomplish a a mission that you truly believe in is, at least from my experience, the only truly long-lasting form of motivation. Mm -hmm. Man, to key in on that a little bit, I I think one of the things that I observe a lot is that some of the most goal-oriented people I know are also some of the most stressed-out people that I know. And I I just like am have become honestly so interested and captivated whenever I can find one of those unicorns that is like simultaneously hungry, driven, growth oriented, and also really content, joyful, and humble. It's like this sweet spot. It's so rare because you can't fake it. 
And, you know, it's something I've even thought a lot about recently and started to jump kind of a different parts of the, the chronology. But what comes to mind is something that I've recent, there's, there's a, an article I recently read and it's called Choose Good Quests. And it's by Trey Stevens and someone else. Trey Stevens was one of the co-founders of Anduril. And the whole premise of the article is basically not enough entrepreneurs are choosing good quests. And good quests they would deem as something that truly betters society, like truly thrust forward humanity. And part of their argument is that most good quests are also hard quests. And so they're usually operationally complex, really expensive, low probability of success. But when they happen, it like really pushes forward society. And you can, I could probably name on one hand the people who are on good hard quests right now, right? Like Elon Musk, the folks at Anduril, you know, uh, the founders of Ezra, which is like the uh, early uh, cancer screening business, the guy who started uh, Figure, which is the humanoid robotics company. Like these are hard, ambitious quests where the odds are that they're going to fail. And basically their argument is that especially for second-time entrepreneurs, too many second-time entrepreneurs are choosing easy, bad quests. Things like becoming a VC. And their argument would be, at some point in time, being a venture capitalist was actually a good quest because cash was not a commodity. And being a VC that funded a business truly could be the difference between a business that could thrust society forward that business happening or not happening. But they're like, that's not the case today. And same thing, their, their view is like, you have these second-time entrepreneurs starting the fifth startup credit card company or buying a boring business. And, and so I'm oftentimes, I've read this article a lot and I've had this thought to myself of like, am I playing it too safe? Am I not doing call like my, uh, moral duty as someone who has the resources and potentially the trust to build something big and take a big swing. There's the other part of me that's like, when I think about taking a big swing, what is that actually being driven by? Is mm -hmm. that being driven by a true desire to thrust society forward? Or is that being driven by a sense of guilt? Is that being driven by ego that I have more to prove to whoever, whatever people in the Twitter bubble or these authors and so something that I've kind of thought about right now is that like, to your point about how it's so rare to find people that are so deeply motivated by a mission, it's like, you can't fake that. And as of right now, there is not a problem that I am so deeply mission-driven by that I would commit my whole life to it. And that's also a very different thing today than like when I was starting Morning Brew. When I was starting Morning Brew, I was you know, a guy in college who could basically devote his entire life to the business. Today, there are many things in life that I want to devote myself to other than business. And so, yeah, it's, it's this back and forth I go through. And my kind of where I've settled on all this now is like, I feel immensely privileged and lucky to be able to play the game of business for just like the joy of playing the game. And so my, my whole view is like, I want to continue to learn and meet smart business people and build for the love of building while also doing it in a way that respects the other buckets in my life that I value just as much. If at some point in time in the future, I feel so incredibly pulled by a problem to solve or a mission to accomplish, okay, I'll revisit it then and ask myself, are all of the trade-offs that I'm about to take on by embarking on this life-driven mission, 
Well, then I'll answer it at the time, but I don't feel anything that I'm so passionate about now. And I think that is okay versus trying to force myself to justify to the world and to create this artificial reality for myself that I feel so driven by something. Mm, man, so powerful. I was going to wait a little bit to ask this question, but I think it ties into what you just said. I believe you just recently got married. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Congratulations. I just got married three months ago as well. So oh, nice. Congrats. Uh, well, thank you so much. And we've got, gosh, a lot of young men that listen to this podcast that are probably within their first one to three years of being married and simultaneously trying to juggle entrepreneurship or building a business as well. Uh, as a practitioner who's in that lane right now, what are the things that you're thinking about as it relates to your marriage to make sure that that is something that you look up 10, 20, 30 years from now and say, man, I, I did that the right way. What, how are you thinking about that right now, Alex? Yeah, I think there's a few things. One is that it's not always easy, but I think it comes down to one, just like, and I feel like this is maybe turning into a relationship advice podcast, but basically I think there's, there's two core things, right? Which is alignment of values and communication. At the end of the day, my wife and I are extremely aligned and clear on what we want our life to look like five to 10 years from now. Hmm. And I think if our view of what that life looked like was very different, it would be a lot harder. Mm -hmm. I think the second is we are generally strong communicators and we realize at times, I can't remember who gave this advice, but it's like relationships aren't 50, 50, like maybe over the, the long term, right? It's if you, if you, if you, like, if you look at like the S and P on a short basis, it's, you know, huge fluctuations. But if you look at it over a 40 year term, it's like a very beautiful, just arc upward of 7% compounding every single year. I think relationships ideally are the same way where if you zoom in at a specific period of time, you know, my wife may be 70, 30 in terms of contribution to the relationship. I may be 60, 40 in terms of contribution to the relationship. But the idea is over the long term, do things even themselves out. I also think that what's so important is like my wife loves me for my beautiful, crazy brain that I have. And I feel so grateful to have kind of like that level of acceptance because I know sometimes my brain isn't easy. Like when I'm going into the kitchen and, and we're in, we're both in between meetings and I'm just rattling off to her my 17th idea of the day, I can see how for certain people that is exhausting. But the fact that she entertains that I think is so valuable to me. And I think, yeah, at, at the end of the day, like um, the number one thing actually that I'm tactically working on is, and I think the reason I'm actually doing this is because I think it's such important practice for not just when you are in a relationship, but ultimately when you have kids, because I think to be totally honest, once you're living with someone, I don't think a relationship really changes at all when you get married. Like it's basically mm -hmm. the same. I think everything changes if and when you choose to have kids. And I think what happens when you end up having kids is for the first time in your life, you're responsible for someone else. Like your calendar is not your calendar, it's someone else's. And I think that just means you have to be so much better and more intentional about how you spend your time. And so for the for me, the thing that I've specifically tried to work on, and it's still, I'm still working on it, is I I am naturally, like, first of all, I'm addicted to technology and to social media by, by nature and by the design of 
these platforms, but also because my job is so intrinsically linked to creating on these platforms, the line between being productive and procrastinating is so incredibly thin. And so for me, what I'm, I'm intentionally trying to do in my life is how do I make sure I'm as present to the experiences that I have committed myself to experiencing at any time of the day? So when I am on this podcast with you, how do I make sure I'm present to this podcast with you in the same way that maybe the three hours my wife and I spend in the day is from, you know, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m.? How am I completely present to her versus me just like scroll, doom scrolling through Twitter on my phone or replying to people's DMs? And so like I'm by no means perfect, but there are a lot of actions that I'm trying to take in life to get myself to a place of feeling really good about intentional spending of time. One of them is I'm literally working on getting an accountability coach. So like hiring someone that, and it's different from an executive coach in the sense of like, I just want to hire someone. And maybe, you know, this is your world that you know really well, but like I, I'm less trying to hire someone to necessarily goal set with me and you know, coach me on being a better leader. More the job I want to serve is like, who is my nutritionist for my time? Mm. Like, who is the person when I've told them my goals and I've told them the metrics that are important to me? An example would be, hey, I want less than, you know, two hours of screen time on social media per day. And I want less than 20 pickups of Twitter or Instagram because that's measured on your phone. How do I have someone who holds me accountable every day to those numbers. And if I if I go over them, there is stakes or social embarrassment for me not keeping within what I've committed myself to. So accountability coach is something. And I'm also working on actually having a peer-to-peer uh, partner. So like another CEO who will hold each other accountable to. And I'm also reading a book right now called Dopamine Nation, which is basically mm-hmm. about how you know social media and technology is as addictive as any other drug in kind of the history of mankind. Yeah, yeah, and we're giving it to our seven-year-olds, which is a great idea. Exactly, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that that's, I, I appreciate you kind of doing that aside too on the way you're thinking about your relationship and things like that, because I think it, it, it's all intertwined. I, I know that's what I'm experiencing and that it sounds like that's the way you talk about it and think about it as well. Let's uh, go back to the building stage of Morning yep. Brew. And I, I'd love for you, if it's possible to give an overview uh, uh, that would help people understand just the rapid growth that y'all experienced. So uh, increase in team members, increase in revenue, type of business you were doing. Give us a snapshot of that. Yeah, I mean, I would say there were two large inflection points in the business. I would say one inflection point was pre-acquisition of the business. One inflection point was post-acquisition of the business. Pre-acquisition from 2018 to 2019 we went from 100,000 subscribers to a million subscribers in 12 months. And we went from spending $0 on paid marketing to spending $500,000 per month in paid marketing or $6 million a year. And I would say there were like kind of these inflection points were defined by two things. The first one, we were still what I would call like a stage one business, which is building a business around a single product So I would say it very much still felt like an early stage company. When we went through this rapid scaling of subscribers with Morning Brew, we were still one single product. We were focused on this very clear and simple cycle around growing a single newsletter into a profitable business, which was 
Step one, write the best daily business newsletter for millennials bar none. Step two, grow it as fast as possible with as high quality of subscribers as possible organically and via paid. And step three, convince the biggest advertisers in the world why they would be fools not to spend money with us on advertising. And so honestly, what caused the rapid growth of the business in 2018 and 2019 is a few things. One is we're just laser focused on putting every amount, every kind of minute of time or every dollar in one of these three steps. We started bringing in advertising revenue. So we start to uh, started to understand effectively how much could we pay for a net new subscriber for Morning Brew. It was also at a time where you could get relatively cheap email subscribers through paid acquisition. That's changed a lot over the last few years. And I, I think, you know, one of the best kind of like hacks for an entrepreneur, especially in the early stages of their business, is just look to people who are two or three innings ahead of you and see exactly what they've tested or figured out. So it's like, during this time, we basically said to ourselves, okay, we want to ramp up paid marketing, but how do we know kind of what channels are performing best? We knew from the skim, the way that they spent on paid marketing was, how much does it cost to acquire someone who opens at least five of their first 10 newsletters? So we knew they had already tested millions of dollars of paid marketing, and this was kind of the metric they arrived to. So we're like, why would we reinvent the wheel? Let's make this our metric. And so we start optimizing for, let's spend on channels where we can, at the lowest cost possible, get people who open at least five of their first 10 newsletters. And so as we start to get this process down, we just simply met, spent more and more on paid acquisition. And I would say, like, 2018 to 2019 was, it was about doing our same product as well as we had been doing it, but really focusing on the levers of growth and monetization. Like that was the year that we scaled, not just the size of our audience, but our revenue as a business. And the beautiful thing about a newsletter business is, you know, people say content is the original software business. And it is so true because if you think about it, you know, we're now eight years into Morning Brew. The fixed cost of putting out our newsletter has not changed since 2016. All it requires is three or four people in terms of headcount. Of course, you add salespeople and you add ops people, but a lot of that is for all of our products, not just the, the single newsletter. And so with a newsletter product, you just have margin that continues to expand and expand and expand, which is why a newsletter business can be such a great lifestyle business. And so, you know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but like our revenue for Morning Brew in that year that we went from 100,000 to a million subscribers, we went from, we went from 750,000 in revenue in 2017 to 3.5 million in 2018, to 13.5 million in 2019, to, I want to say like 20-something million in 2020, and then 40 in 2021, and then most recently 70. So I may be missing a year, but that was the rough trajectory. And so, yeah, it really was just like, the first inflection point was around scaling growth and monetization of a product that had proven product market fit. Mm. The second inflection point was post-acquisition. And it, the way I would refer to that inflection point is like, that was where we had to really focus on company building. And I think in a lot of ways, it's why when I reflect on my time with The Brew, I think that's why it made a lot of sense for me to no longer CEO the business because I both, I think I excel at and love the chapter one 
of product building, proving there's demand for it and making that into a business. So it's like all your efforts are focused on product market fit and business around this product. Chapter two is around company building. And my co-founder, Austin, who became the CEO, like I think he's a significantly better company builder than me. And so, you know, just to kind of put metrics to it, we were acquired in October of 2020. We went from ad acquisition, I think we had roughly around 50 to 70 employees. Within a year and a half to two years of that acquisition, we got to 300 at peak. <laughs> Unreal. And so much of that was both a combination of having the right infrastructure to fuel our existing products, which at the time of our acquisition was our daily newsletter. We had started launching other uh, industry-specific newsletters. So that's when we went into retail brew, emerging tech brew. And at the time, I believe we also had marketing brew and we had launched our first podcast. So it was a combination of having the right like company infrastructure across sales, marketing and growth, HR, like all the internal processes you need, while also we started launching other businesses as well. And there's so many lessons in us trying to do many things that are really valuable. But yeah, that was the second big inflection point was both a growth in revenue, but is really more a growth in headcount to try to catch up to us not doing any company building in the first stage. And one thing I'll just speak to is, I think a huge inflection point for us and even for me running the business versus my co-founder is like, I very much am a like fire from the hip type of early stage founder where my co-founder is extremely methodical and process oriented. And I remember it was in late 2019. He messaged me on Slack one day being like, you know, we've been talking about how do we get more proactive and less reactive with our business? Because for what, for up to that point, we had felt like everything we were spending time on was to make sure the business was staying together that day. And we were like, how do we get out of it? How do we get out of this cycle? And how do we start thinking about planning for a quarter from now, a half year from now, or a year from now? And he's like, okay, one of our, one of our investors, this guy who he uh, was the investor of the, uh, the creator of the Snuggie, super successful businessman. And he suggested a book to Austin called Traction. Are you familiar with Traction? Oh yeah, EOS, yeah. Yeah. And so again, we had never heard of EOS at the time, but Austin was like, basically like this book changed my life. I read it in a day and he's like, you have to read it. So I had ended up reading it begrudgingly. And EOS basically, you know, it now it's like, this is our business has operated on EOS since 2019. But at the time we were like, oh my God, there's like actually like an operating system. Like there's like a, a recipe for how to run your company, plan ahead, build a leadership team, set your vision, make sure the right people are in the right seats. And so we we started following that process. And I think by following the process, it forces company building. Hmm. Man, that's so inspiring. That I mean, in so many ways, EOS is one of the role models we look to in the marketplace of like, man, they built such a dialed in system and like we're trying to build something very similar for people that are impact driven leaders. Like if your business exists to make a difference in the marketplace, like there's a path towards making that difference. I guess one of the things that stands out to me is like th those three areas that y'all focused on for business growth. I, I think one of the skill sets of an effective entrepreneur is learning how to choose those three areas and then simultaneously having the discipline to say no to all the other things that come at you as potential opportunities. How did y'all exercise that self-control? Yeah, it's funny. I think uh, 
something that I am, <laughs> am both really good at and really bad at helped us and, and hurt us. Meaning, I think I'm very good at simplifying things and explaining them for others to understand and for myself to understand. Because I think my natural way of thinking is like when things feel overwhelming to me or there's a lot of moving pieces, I have to boil it down to its most simple essence. And so at the time I was just like, what are we trying to accomplish? And I would think to myself, okay, we were just trying to prove that a single media product can be a great business. And I was like, okay, what is the first most important thing? The product. If the product isn't good, and if your customers don't like the product, nothing else matters. That was the first step. How do we have a great product? And then I was like, okay, let's say we accomplish that first goal of have a great product because nothing else matters in business unless you crush the product. Then it's like, okay, once we feel good about the product, I would assume the thing we should care most about is like have as many customers as possible consuming that product because that will give us the most leverage okay, we need more customers. We need more of the right customers. Who are the right customers? And then the third was, okay, let's assume we can get the right customers reading a great product. How do we make money from it? There are two ways. We charge people or we charge advertisers. Our view at the time was we're, we, we don't want to get in the game of charging people because that's a really difficult game to play. Let's charge advertisers. And so our view was like, okay, we need to be able to storytell our brand to advertisers and we have to be really good at it because we have no legitimacy. No one's ever heard of us. We need to convince people to spend money with us. And so that that's one thing that I would say I'm really good at, which is my natural inst instinct when I'm overwhelmed by information is I try to simplify as much as possible. Now, the my biggest weakness is I get really excited about things. I get really excited. I get bored easily. And so what that means to me is, how do I deal with easy distractibility and easy boredom? One is, I think the first step is accepting myself for being easily distractible and easily bored. And then it's like, okay, what do I do with that? One thing I can do with that is like try to change how distractible I am or how bored I am, or I can kind of leverage the strengths of that because there's positives of that, which is like creativity, being inspiring, bringing excitement to other people. But how am I... Uh, a horse at the Kentucky Derby that has blinders on and a jockey on his back. And so I think what that looks like for me is having a great focused partner or operator. Mm. And so for me, that was Austin. Austin was exceptional at focusing us. And I think as I think about building businesses in the future, that is something I'm constantly looking for is basically who is my Austin or who is the jockey as I am running around with reckless abandon around the track. Uh, let's pretend Austin wasn't here anymore and you were interviewing for an operator. What uh, questions are you asking? What specific things are you looking for in that person that you're like, this is the type of person I want to work with? It's a great question. Um, I hope that I'm not self-prophesying anything. I want you to be with Austin for a very long time, but I'm working together. For no, 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 <laughs> not at all. It's, it's super helpful and important also because, you know, we haven't even talked about this, but like outside of Morning Brew, I kind of have a plan for how I want to launch other businesses. And to do that effectively, it requires me to answer the exact question you just asked. Mm. I think there's a few things that come to mind. I'll start at the highest level of like, what do I think is required in a great partner slash co-founder? And I think it's a deep level of self-awareness. I think it's um, critical thinking. I think it's alignment and values, and I think it's strong communication. I think those are the four things. Now, for a great operator, 
I think the assumption is I already have those four things. So it is someone who I'm aligned on what we're building with the business. Uh, we're aligned on, they have awareness that they are an integrator or they are great at the operations of the business. They are, have the ability to pattern match certain things from their past life in their career, but also have the ability to understand when pattern matching doesn't work and the context is totally different. It's like, th that's all assumed. What am I looking for? One is, I think, actually in an interesting way, when we are talking and when we're working through things, how effectively is this person bringing me back? So what I mean by that is, I'll, I'll just use another example. Like, so I launched another business um, three months ago, and it's a, a personal branding agency for executives, specifically on Twitter and LinkedIn. And what I did with my co-founder for that business and the person who's the CEO is I had them work as a consultant on this business for a month. And in that month, one of the things that I most look for is how much structure, good structure, can this person create around the business so that we can prioritize effectively without me lead, kind of leading them to the answer. And so, you know, I got really excited when this person, their gut reaction week one was to, to start building out the VTO from EOS and like start putting together the pieces that way. So like, I was like, okay, check, you know, this, it, they're not necessarily the perfect person because they know EOS, but it is great that they have a mental model for operating the business. Then the, basically the second thing in my head was as we talk through the business, like I'm actually not going to hold back from sharing all of my creative ideas and sharing about all the products I think we can launch. I want to see how they can take all of those things and how comfortable they are to push back on me and to say, Alex, we need to focus on these one or two things first and also how good they are at choosing the one or two things that I think are most important. Mm -hmm. So actually in a weird way, <laughs> I guess it's kind of logical, but like be myself, simulate what it would be like for us to work as much as possible, but make the stakes low because I didn't bring them on as a co-founder until we had worked in that capacity for a month. Mm. Man, I, I feel like you put words to so much of what I've experienced with our CEO, Zach, who, which you know, Zach, better than you know me. Yep. Um, but it's in so many ways, your relationship with Austin, it's like the way you talk about it is like being a little bit lucky and naive. That's how I feel with Zach. But one of the things that I really appreciate about Zach is, man, he he is ruthlessly principally based in the way that he thinks and he is willing to argue me to the ground. But then even beyond that, kind of something what you just highlighted that I don't think I've thought of before is like, I respect him so much. Like his arguments carry weight with me and he can like go toe to toe with me and tell me I'm wrong. And I think it's because I really respect the way he thinks and operates. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think the beautiful thing about working with someone who has a very different brain from yours is actually like, through osmosis, you become stronger in those areas through spending time with them. And while you may never be kind of like the person to be the COO of the business, you get closer to being really good at those things and being able to suss out who is good at those things. So for example, like when Austin and I started working together, if there was a spectrum of like, let's say there was a spectrum of creativity from zero out of 10 to 10 out of 10, I would say 
let's just say I was a eight or a nine and Austin was a one or a two. And then let's just say on the spectrum of deep thinking or linear thinking, zero to 10, Austin was an eight or a nine and I was a one or a two. I think the beautiful thing, if things work out effectively, is without trying to do so, but simply through osmosis of so many conversations that force you to deeply understand the way someone thinks. By the time Austin and I had spent five or six years in the business, I think on the creative uh, thinking spectrum, Austin had gotten to like a five or a six out of 10. And I think on the linear thinking spectrum, I had gotten to a five or a six out of 10, where actually if I was to go have a conversation with another founder, they would think I'm a really strong linear thinker, largely because my brain has just photocopied what I understand to be really good linear thinking from Austin. Man, that uh, that's really inspiring and, and really encouraging as well. That it's like, man, if we can learn from the people that are different than us, there's so much value to that. So it seems like there's definitely a reality where uh, people that are so different, you know, an eight or a nine on opposite spectrums, that where it could really be a disaster, right? Where you end up hating each other and not even being willing to speak to each other. And that's how it ends with a lot of people that try the visionary integrator thing. What are the rhythms that y'all had in place to ensure that y'all could stay in lockstep and really like keep your arms locked so that it wouldn't go sideways? Yeah, I think what worked for Austin and I was we were, we had enough uh, alignment in values and uh, similar enough temperaments that it made up for actually imperfect communication. Because I think by definition, even if you're a strong communicator, especially when it's your first business, basically my view is whenever you do something for the first time, you can assume you're mediocre at it. So if it's your first time running a business and communication is important, assume that you're a mediocre communicator, assume you're a mediocre leader, assume you're a mediocre manager. And I think not only is that largely true and there's some outliers, but it also creates an awareness around things you probably should work on. And I think for Austin and I, we just were not extraordinary communicators while we were running the business together. And what I mean by that is at no point in the history of the business while we were CEO and COO, did we have like level setting conversations of like, how am I doing? How are you doing? What's working? What's not working? Right. And it sounds so obvious, but the reason it wasn't obvious is it was our first business ever. We started it when we were sophomores and seniors in college and we didn't, we weren't equipped with the tools for it to be obvious. And so that's why I think, you know, now I, I'm, makes such a point of kind of like these these types of conversations with anyone that I'm working with. And for me, it's like, there's a, I'm trying to remember her name, the, the ex-COO of Stripe, uh, Claire. She wrote a book called, uh, I think, Scaling Teams. But basically, she was referenced in Elod Gill's book, High Growth Handbook. And one of the things she did when she was at Stripe is she wrote basically a manifesto on how to work with her. Like she would mm -hmm. write basically a one pager on, this is how to work with Claire. When Claire is saying nothing, this is what you can assume she's thinking. Uh, when Claire is upset about something, this is how you can expect it will be delivered. Uh, this is how Claire prioritizes issues. And so you know Basically, there's so many times, the, the reason I think that's such a powerful thing is, and I was just talking about this with someone, 
is almost everything breaks down in a business other than a bad product that doesn't solve an issue for a customer as a function of bad communication. And what happens is, is the reason bad communication is so bad is it's actually not the communication itself. It's what happens when there is lack of communication. And it is the fact that we as human beings are story-making machines. We, ma we create stories as a way of surviving. But the issue is, is those stories oftentimes are flawed. And actually, there's generally way simpler explanations than the stories we create for ourselves. And so the, the reason I love what Claire does and the reason with any you know, CEO or partner I choose to work with today is I, I have weekly conversations with them about basically how am I doing? How are you doing? What's working? What's not working, et cetera, is the extent to which you can remove story making in business. I think the better off you are for communication to never be a thing that brings down a relationship or the company. Mm. Man, well said. And I think so often like communication can be the first thing to go and we get really busy, but yep. it's like the thing that you actually need to prioritize more when you get really busy. Man, Alex, I, I feel like this was so helpful, both tactically and principally. So thank you. And I don't know that we're going to have the time to zoom in on the exit uh, and the adventure stage of where you're at now, but uh, maybe we can do that sometime in the future. 100%. Everyone that's listening, like we'll put all the links to follow Alex. Man, whenever you were talking about simplification, I was like, yeah, based on everything I've experienced from you, from Founders Journal and then LinkedIn, I'm like, this guy must dream in outlines or something like that because <laughs> uh, it just comes out of you like a machine, it seems like. And so absolutely incredible content to follow and stay in touch with. Before we go, I, I'd love to know what's something you're just outrageously excited about right now and why? You know, everyone talks about the creator economy and there's been obviously a lot a lot of overexcitement in how much funding has gone to the creator economy and how much it hasn't worked out. I'm actually most excited about kind of the unsexy parts of the creator economy where you think about how do you take some of the best executives and B2B professionals in the world, how do you empower them to become creators? And in doing so, how can you build great businesses off of the access they get to high quality audiences from creating content and sharing their knowledge. That's the first. And the second is I'm just very excited to be in a stage of life where I get to enjoy time with my wife, with my family, think about the future with a family. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, as much as I love business, again, I feel super grateful to think about business as a game. And I think like, you know, the, the most important thing and the thing I feel most thankful for is to have the ability and the freedom to enjoy things outside of business. Mm, so cool. Man, appreciate uh, your time, your perspective, and probably more than all of that, just your example. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm so grateful to Alex for his time, for his perspective in this conversation, and for his example. He is clearly someone that is deeply committed to never-ending, continuous improvement. Hey, one more thing before we go. If you are someone that owns or runs a business, we're doing something really cool right now. We're offering a 14-day free trial of our community coaching program. That includes our weekly office hours conversations, access to all 12 of the fundamentals for healthy growth lessons that we have, and all of the workbooks on how to take those fundamentals and apply them to your business. If you want more details on who the coaching community is for and how to take advantage of the free 
free trial, you can click the link that's in the show notes or go to pathforgrowth.com and apply for a 14-day free trial. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.